0: It's our duty to advise you of your constitutional rights. You have the right to remain silent, and any statement you make may be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to the presence of an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed before any questioning. Do you understand that? If you have watched a crime TV show in the past 50 years, this warning is likely familiar to you. It is known as the Miranda Warning. What you may not know is that it was not enacted into law by any legislative body. It was first enacted into law by the Supreme Court. But when Congress was petitioned for and enacted some changes to the Miranda Warning, the Supreme Court nullified these changes on the grounds that Miranda was a constitutional rule which Congress could not supersede legislatively. Miranda is a perfect example of judicial review, resulting in new law a power which the supreme court was not granted this is the free to be free podcast encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free In order to unpack this concept of judicial review, let's begin by taking a look at the case of Miranda versus Arizona. Now I'm going to read the facts of the case from the Oyez website, and I'll have a link to this in the show notes. So it was on March 13th of 1963 that Ernesto Miranda was arrested in his house Now he was brought to the police station where he was questioned by police officers in connection with a kidnapping and a rape. After two hours of interrogation, the police obtained a written confession from Miranda. The written confession was admitted into evidence at a trial despite the objection of the defense attorney and the fact that the police officers admitted They had not advised Miranda of his right to have an attorney present during the interrogation. The jury found Miranda guilty. Now, on appeal, the Supreme Court of Arizona affirmed and held that Miranda's constitutional rights were not violated because he did not specifically request counsel. So the case went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the question before the Supreme Court was, Does the Fifth Amendment's protection against self-incrimination extend to the police interrogation of a suspect? Chief Justice Earl Warren delivered the majority opinion in the 5-4 ruling, concluding that the defendant's interrogation violated the Fifth Amendment. Now, to protect the privilege, the court-reasoned procedural safeguards were required. And a defendant was required to be warned before questioning that he had the right to remain silent. Anything he said could be used against him in a court of law. And a defendant was required to be told that he had the right to an attorney. And if he could not afford attorney, one was to be appointed to him prior to any questioning, if he so desired. So in essence, the judgment of the Supreme Court was that Miranda was denied due process in the fact that he was not informed of his rights. And certainly we can't have a free society if the authorities are allowed to coerce confessions from suspects they have arrested. If this was in fact the case in the Miranda case, the Supreme Court also rightfully judged that procedural safeguards were required. Both of these judgments were well within the court's constitutional power. However, the court overstepped its power when it decided what those procedural safeguards would be. The court, in effect, legislated from the bench. Now, this isn't to say that the Miranda warnings are a bad idea or we shouldn't have those procedures. It's just to say that the Supreme Court is not the right branch of government to pass such a law. Alexander Hamilton can shed some light on this. In Federalist 78, he writes, It may truly be said, and he's speaking of the Supreme Court here, It may truly be said that to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, And must ultimately depend on the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. So he's saying that the Supreme Court should exercise or it has the authority to exercise judgment, but that's it. It does not have the authority to exercise will, which is the legislature to pass laws, and it does not have the constitutional authority to exercise force, which is the role of the executive. In the Miranda case, the Supreme Court properly exercised judgment in its decision that Miranda's rights were violated in the arrest and the confession. It also rightly exercised judgment in observing that procedural safeguards were required but it should not have taken that next step of exercising will in determining what those safeguards are. That is something that should be left for the legislature. Now, as time went on and the Miranda warnings were implemented, there became a number of cases where a suspect would offer a voluntary confession even before police were able to give the Miranda warning And then later in the court, that voluntary confession would be thrown out. And in some cases, victims felt that justice wasn't being done because a criminal got off because their pre-Miranda warning voluntary confession was thrown out. This led citizens to petition Congress to modify the Miranda warning to allow for voluntary confessions before the police read a Miranda warning. As a result, Congress passed a law and it became U.S. Code Title 18, Part 2, Chapter 223, Section 3501. Don't worry about remembering that. I'll include a link if you wanna look at the specifics of that law. But basically, this law kept the Miranda warnings in place but allowed for procedures for a judge and the jury to determine whether a voluntary confession prior to the Miranda warning could be admissible in a court of law. Now, it may not surprise you to learn that ultimately there was a challenge to Section 3501. It uh, came before the Supreme Court in Dickerson versus The United States. And here are the facts, again, from the Oyez database. And again, I'll include a link in the show notes. But it was during questioning about a robbery uh, that he was connected to that Charles Dickerson made statements to authorities admitting that he was the getaway driver in a series of bank robberies. Now, Dickerson was then placed under arrest, and the timing of his statement is disputed. The FBI and local detectives testified that Dickerson was advised of his Miranda rights uh, prior to his statement, but Dickerson said he was not read his Miranda warnings until after he gave his statement. After his indictment for bank robbery, Dickerson filed a motion to suppress the confession he made on the grounds that he had not received the Miranda warnings before being interrogated. The government argued that even if the Miranda warnings were not read, the statement was voluntary and therefore admissible under 18 U.S. Code section 3501, which provides that a confession shall be admissible in evidence if it is voluntarily given. The district court granted Dickerson's motion, finding that he had not been read his Miranda rights or signed a waiver until after he made his statement but the court did not address section 3501. The appeals court reversed that decision um, and, and acknowledged that Dickerson had not received his Miranda warnings, but held that section 3501 was satisfied because his statement was voluntary. So this came up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court looked at the question like this may Congress legislatively overrule Miranda versus Arizona and its warnings that govern the admissibility of statements made during custodial interrogation. So in a 7-2 to two opinion, Chief Justice William Rehnquist delivered the majority opinion, and the court held that Miranda governs the admissibility of statements made during custodial interrogation in both state and federal courts. And I'm quoting uh, his opinion, Miranda has become embedded in routine police practice to the point where the warnings have become part of our national culture. Miranda announced a constitutional rule that Congress may not supersede legislatively. We declined to overrule Miranda ourselves, concluded the Chief Justice. So basically what this Supreme Court decision is saying is that Congress cannot overrule or modify a law enacted by the Supreme Court, even though legislation is the role of Congress and not the Supreme Court. And this is a blatant example of what we know as judicial review. So it's fitting at this point to take a closer look into the concept of judicial review. So what we need to do is take a look at a case which is held up as the genesis or the start of judicial review. And that is a case called Marbury versus Madison. Now, before we jump into this, it's important that I note that uh, the description I'm going to use for this case uh, relies heavily on a book, The Second American Revolution, by Glenn Neal. And in fact, uh, this book was also the inspiration for the discussion we just had on the Miranda and Dickerson cases. I'll, of course, include a link in the show notes to this great resource. So it was the presidential election of 1800 when Thomas Jefferson defeated John Adams. And this was a time when the new president did not take office until March of the following year. So it was March of 1801, even though the election was held in November of 1800. So after Jefferson was elected president, But before he was sworn into office, the outgoing Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1801, creating 58 new judges. Two weeks later, Congress created 42 new Justices of the Peace. The lame duck president, John Adams, signed the new bills into law and then proceeded to pack the judiciary with judges and justices in a blatant attempt to preserve power after his party lost the election. President Adams also filled a vacancy on the Supreme Court by nominating John Marshall, his Secretary of State, as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The Senate confirmed the appointment on January 27th of 1801, and John Marshall continued to serve as Secretary of State through the remainder of President Adams' term, which ended when Jefferson was sworn in as president on March 4th of 1801. The Judiciary Act further provided that upon the first vacancy to occur on the Supreme Court, the number of justices would be be reduced from six to five thereby denying President Jefferson his first opportunity to appoint someone from his political party to the court. In a race against the clock, Adams appointed party loyalists and instructed Marshall to get the commissions evidencing the appointments sealed and delivered before Jefferson took office. Now, wearing his Secretary of State hat, Marshall prepared the commissions and presented them for President Adams' signature, then affixed the great seal upon the appointments to judicial office. Marshall delivered the commissions for the judges in a timely manner, but because of the time difference between the act creating new judgeships and the second act creating the justices of the peace, many of the latter did not win Senate confirmation until March 3 of 1801, the day before Jefferson's inauguration. In spite of having only a day left in his term in office, Marshall managed to deliver many of the appointments, but a few, including that of William Marbury, could not be delivered in time. So let me pause here, and uh, it just is amazing to me uh, the amount of political tricks going on here. I mean, we think of our time as, as contentious and parties um jockeying for control and taking advantage of the others, uh, especially in terms of Supreme Court positions. But we've got all of that going on uh, shortly after the ratification of the Constitution. Well, back to our story here in Marbury versus Madison. Uh, Jefferson, when he took office, he instructed his new Secretary of State, James Madison, to withhold delivery of the commissions. Marbury filed a suit in the Supreme Court seeking a writ of mandamus to compel Madison to give him his certificate evidencing his appointment. So a couple of comments here. The remedy that uh, Marbury was seeking a writ of mandamus is simply a court order, as I said, compelling Madison to deliver the certificate. Now Marbury filed this suit in the Supreme Court because he was following the Judiciary Act of 1789, which stated that the Supreme Court would be the court of original jurisdiction for such a case. Marbury argued that his appointment was complete when the Senate confirmed him. President Adams signed his commission and Secretary of State Marshall affixed the seal of the United States. Jefferson's argument was that Marbury was not a justice of the peace until the document was delivered into his hands. Now, John Marshall, when Marbury versus Madison came before the court, was in the awkward position of presiding over a court that would rule on the legality of his, John Marshall's, own actions when he was Secretary of State. So Marshall, while Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and Secretary of State at the same time personally committed the act which became the basis of the suit that Chief Justice Marshall now had before him in the Supreme Court. Marshall was judging himself. So Marshall had another problem. He was very much aware that without the backing of the executive branch, the court had no enforcement powers. He was also aware that Thomas Jefferson and his former boss, John Adams, were bitter political rivals, and Jefferson was none too fond of Marshall. This meant that Marshall had to face the reality that if the court issued a writ of mandamus ordering the new Secretary of State, James Madison, to deliver Marbury's commission, the president would likely instruct Madison to ignore it, further diminishing the court's power and prestige. Marshall decided to make lemonade out of lemons. He would give the Jeffersonians what they wanted. He would not issue the mandamus, but he would do it in a way that grabbed more power for the court. And it's often argued that in the process, he would invent judicial review. So the main three questions before the court in this case were, number one, do the plaintiffs, that's Marbury, have a right to receive their commissions? Number two, can they sue for their commissions in court? And number three, does the Supreme Court have the authority to order the delivery of their commissions? Now I'm quoting the uh, opinion from the Oyas database here. The court found that Madison's refusal to deliver the commission was illegal, but did not order Madison to hand over Marbury's commission via writ of mandamus. Instead, the court held that the provision of the Judiciary Act of 1789 that Marbury relied on to bring the claim to the Supreme Court as the court of original jurisdiction, that act was itself unconstitutional since it extended the court's original jurisdiction beyond which Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution established. So Marshall said that a writ of mandamus was the proper way to seek a remedy but concluded that the Supreme Court could not issue it because the Judiciary Act of 1789 unconstitutionally expanded the Supreme Court's power and Congress did not have the power to modify the Constitution through regular legislation They would have to rely on Article 5 to do that. And the Supremacy Clause clearly places the Constitution before ordinary laws passed by the Congress. So the popular argument is that Marshall established the principle of judicial review in the ruling on this Marbury versus Madison case. Now before we go on to really talk about judicial review, I have to add one more bit of political intrigue here, as if there isn't enough political shenanigans surrounding this case. When the Judiciary Act of 1789 was passed by Congress, John Marshall himself was a member of Congress and he voted in favor of the Judiciary Act of 1789, even though he would later declare it unconstitutional as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And we think that the Supreme Court today has become overly influenced by politics. The truth is it's been that since the beginning. So let's take a closer look at the origins of judicial review. And as I said, it's commonly felt that Marbury versus Madison is the case that introduced judiciary review uh, into our judicial system. But that's actually not the case. In a paper published by Georgetown Law, authored by constitutional scholar and professor Randy Barnett, Barnett makes a compelling argument that the concept of judicial review actually was included in the original public meaning of the term judicial power back in the 1700s. So, when the Constitution in Article 3 states that the judicial power is vested in a Supreme Court, the original public meaning included the power of the court to nullify laws which were unconstitutional. So, what we often call judicial review was actually part of the original meaning of the Constitution and not, in fact, created in the case of Marbury versus Madison. Now, I also like Professor Barnett's use of terms here. He uses the term judicial nullification to describe this concept that was included in the original public meaning of judicial power, meaning the court had power to overturn laws which were not constitutional. This did not include the power to modify laws or to legislate as we often think of when we use the term judicial review. Barnett uses the term judicial supremacy to describe when the Supreme Court is overstepping its power and actually legislating. So in the cases we've discussed, in the Marbury versus Madison case, This is an excellent example of judicial nullification, the proper power of the Supreme Court to strike down a law that is unconstitutional. In the example we looked at of both the Miranda and the Dickerson cases, these are examples of judicial supremacy where the court went beyond simply the power of nullification. In fact, in Miranda, there was no law that was being nullified based on a constitutional basis. The court was simply exercising judicial supremacy in creating new law. And in the Dickerson case, the court was nullifying Section 3501, the law that Congress passed, but it did so by claiming that The Miranda ruling was in fact now constitutional law so Dickerson declared section 3501 unconstitutional on the premise that the Miranda ruling was now part of the Constitution. And there is a great irony here. If you remember from the Miranda decision the majority opinion stated Miranda announced a constitutional rule that Congress may not supersede legislatively. And as we learned from Marbury versus Madison, Congress cannot legislatively make constitutional changes. The irony is that Miranda itself was created in a case where the Supreme Court overstepped its authority and modified the constitution extra legislatively and then turned around and used that to nullify Section 3501 in the Dickerson case. So let's take a couple of minutes to wrap this up by turning to the question of how can we clean up this mess? And of course, an Article Five Convention of the States can propose some amendments that could address these issues. One, which came out of The simulated convention that we conducted in 2016 is an abrogation amendment, which states that a ruling of the Supreme Court can be overturned by a supermajority vote of either Congress or the state legislatures. This would provide a powerful check and balance on judicial supremacy. Another potential amendment would be codifying the non-delegation doctrine into the Constitution. I would recommend that you go back and listen to the Free to Be Free podcast episode 20 on the non-delegation doctrine if you want to dig deeper into this. But an amendment that would implement the non-delegation doctrine would go something like this. The powers delegated by the Constitution to the government of the United States shall be exercised as therein appropriated so that the legislative shall never exercise the powers vested in the executive or judicial, nor the executive the powers vested in the legislative or judicial, nor the judicial the powers vested in the legislative or executive. Another idea I would suggest is to implement a recommendation power for the Supreme Court that parallels the recommendation power that the President has. So in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution, it reads like this, talking of the President, he shall from time to time give the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Now this necessary and expedient clause gives the President the authority to recommend to Congress things that they should consider for legislative purposes. Why not grant that same power to the Supreme Court, allowing them to recommend to Congress for their consideration such measures as the court shall judge necessary and expedient as a way to put a limit on what the court can do. So the court would not be allowed to legislate, but they could make necessary and expedient recommendations to Congress. I'm thinking in terms of the Miranda case, it would have been clearly superior for the Supreme Court, instead of legislating the Miranda warning, to make a necessary and expedient recommendation to Congress to create an adequate rule for the situation. Well, I know we've covered a lot of material in here, and this has been a rather in-depth podcast. So, if you're still with us, thanks for hanging in there. All I can say is self governance isn't always simple, but it's worth the effort. This is the Free to Be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then, you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.